the Army wants industry to help it change the way it structures its data. A newly released request for information is a key first step in building what the Army calls a unified data reference architecture. Now, the basic idea is to treat all of the Army's data like a product that soldiers can access from anywhere without putting all that data in a single place. As Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, the architecture will lean heavily on the concepts of data fabrics and a data mesh. The Army has already built a digital model of what it thinks its data reference architecture should look like. In the October 28th RFI, officials asked vendors to offer feedback on how they'd build and support something like it in the real world. Responses are due by December 2nd. Overall, the goal is to flatten and streamline the complicated data environment the Army operates in today. Young Bang, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics and Technology, says the service wants to move to a more federated and decentralized data environment. We really have to simplify and accelerate getting data to the next area commander so they can enable their decision making, right? The whole scenario of how we are insistent on replicating data at every echelon doesn't work, clogs our network. And by the time a core commander gets that data, it's already multiple days too late. The enemy's already moved on. And so, again, we're doing a lot with the Intel group, right? We're doing a lot with uh, 18th Airborne Corps. We're doing things by exception that are looking at how do we get uh, the data to the commander faster. But it shouldn't be by exception. So we're trying to institutionalize these type of things. The Army plans to implement the Unified Data Reference Architecture, or UDRA, in phases. To start with, it's focusing on analytical data products produced at relatively high echelons of the Army's command structure, the core level, and above. The Army wants to organize that architecture around the fairly new industry concepts that make up a data mesh, including the idea that domain owners should be responsible for particular types of data. In the Army's case, those are defined for now as mission command, intelligence, fires and effects, maneuver, sustainment, protection, and cyber protection. Dan Andrews is a systems architect in the office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Data Engineering and Software. That's, that's a key thing, is that we're not trying to come up with that single, this is the data model, but instead we're going to federate across multiple data domains to say, this domain business system domains, you have responsibility for this data. You can govern it within that domain however you wish. Warfighter domains, you have responsibility for this data. Don't be creating products and working that, on things that are in the business area, right? So doing federation of that, and but then decentralizing, allowing the data to be owned, managed, and stored within those domains, not replicated and persisted into a bunch of centralized single points. You know, this is the one-stop shop where you go get your data. Once those functional communities have governance and management authority over their data, the Army also expects them to take a product-centric view toward delivering that data to soldiers. Andrew says the Army wants to create a continuous feedback loop to continue improving those products to meet soldiers' needs, but also enable a degree of self-service at the tactical edge. That data product essentially has two key components. There's the actual data payload, that content that you want to, that the consumer needs. And then there is the metadata about the, the data. And that, that metadata has a lots of information about it. If a producer has a product, what they'll do is they will publish that product out to an enterprise service of a data of a catalog. But all they're publishing there is the metadata about what their product is 
And the most important thing is the endpoint of typically an API where consumers can go reach that data product. But that API endpoint is back at the domains, the product producers control and, and their compute environment, their local. It's not a one-stop centralized. So when a consumer says, oh, I need data, they can go to the catalog, query it, look through it and say, oh, this is a data product that I believe meets my need and they'll be pointed to the API endpoint of where to consume it. Then they go direct to that API endpoint and pull the data. That a, part of the product is gonna give the entire specification of how you interact with that API um, and information about the product so that they can go direct and self-serve consume it. Andrew says the initial RFI is focused mainly on the data products themselves. Future versions will help flesh out the specific definitions of the data domains and the enterprise services the Army will need to tie them all together and make those APIs available to end users. And there's other infrastructure work that needs to be done too. The Army wants to move to an ecosystem of transport-agnostic data fabrics, making use of commercial satellite, cellular, and many other network technologies it has at its disposal. Major General Jeff Ray is the director of the Army's network cross-functional team. We want robust transport, reducing complexity on it, improving the environment so we have a data, you know, a cloud-enabled environment, and then we use our data fabric as a catches mitt, and then the data mesh that's going to allow us to get to where that data is and use those APIs across the board. And then under security architecture, we're going to do zero trust. It's the user to the device, the device to the application or the network. And then on the right side, how we create data in the future, tagging it, labeling it, so we, we have better understanding of it using AI machine learning. Then we're going to use your attributes, attribute-based access control to actually get after that data. And then Everything is underpinned by SEMA. You know, cybersecurity is going to be key. We've got to bake it in early because we know that folks are going to try to attack our networks. And so we're going to bake that in early, and we're working with teams that's going to help us achieve that goal. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. 
and his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.